Okay, we want to read our scriptures today. Let me take these glasses off and put the other ones on. Psalm 89, verses 11 through 18. Tremendous psalm. I think these were part of the verses, not all of them, that I read for Isaac and Janie Inyang's wedding. I can't remember for sure, but I know it was part of this. But these are, are, this is a good verse, good section of Psalm 89 that just reminds us who God is and who his people are. So listen here to God's word. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm, your hand is mighty, your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King is the Holy One of Israel. Amen. Our gospel lesson comes from John chapter 4. One of my uh, favorite passages, I use it all the time in premarital counseling, believe it or not. And uh, it speaks to us still. John chapter 4. I'll be reading selected verses, but really verses 7 through 26 is where it all comes from. Uh, Jesus is on his way from Judea up to Galilee. So he has to go through Samaria. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to go through Samaria. He gets tired, sits beside a well, sends his disciples into town to get some food. And while he's there, a woman comes out. So listen here to God's word. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, thus you have truly spoken. The woman said, sir, (laughs) I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people, that is the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For such people the Father seeks to be his worshiper. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. Then our primary text today is from Revelation chapter 21, the first 15 verses. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 15. 1 through 14, pardon me. This is the last of the seven uh, I saw things that, the, that John sees with a little periscope. I'll talk about it to start off the sermon. But, uh, so it's just one of seven excursus. Listen here to God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any lamenting or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write it down, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper, having a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Holy God, we are before you with awe and wonder at your greatness and at your goodness toward us. And Lord, we ask you to extend, to continue that goodness to us in the proclamation of your word, that Lord, you would speak into our hearts and into our lives that which is true life indeed. So we give ourselves this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. I should say that in the last three months, I've become accustomed to preaching for 
40 or 45 minutes because of the abbreviated other things that we had. So I'll try and tone it down today, but there's no guarantees. All right? Uh, I already said that this is the final view given to John uh, of from the A.D. 70, where he's looking at the, he's seeing the destruction of Jerusalem in spirit. Prophetically, he saw that, though he's writing somewhere in 65 or 66, and sees all the way through to the end, to the second coming of Christ. Uh, each of these seven views are restricted. It's like looking through a telescope. And I can see straight down that field of vision, but I can't see over here. So the seven views pick up the whole broad landscape, but each view has one particular view in mind. And today, the view is on the church. So what is it that John sees when he looks down, when God opens it were and shows him down through history to the end of time? He sees that at the end of time, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we need to know that this new is not as new in just created. It's not like the bread and fish, and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. That was new stuff in the universe that hadn't been there before. This is new. That would be naos, by the way, if, if it were, were that kind of stuff, the Greek word. But it's new as in restored or refinished according to design. Kainos is the Greek word there. So he sees a new heaven and a new earth. This, all this that we have here is renewed, remade, is what he sees. And he says there's no longer any sea. We've learned that the sea is representative of all the strivings of mankind, all the chaos that ensues, and the sea is always restless, it's never as still, and it rises up against God and His order. That's what the sea does. There's no longer any sea there. Now, Psalm 2, which we memorized last uh, year sometime, speaks of that. Why are the nations in an uproar? The Gentiles devise the vain thing. They want to say, they want to shake off the Lord's order, shake off his chains, and go their own way. Psalm 93 talks about how uh, the waves have lifted up, O Lord, the waves have lifted up. They're mighty breakers, but the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. So uh, the sea stands for that. Now this sea also, we remember back from, from uh, Revelation chapter 17, is where the harlot sits. Remember the harlot, this great thing that's going on? The harlot set on many waters. So there's no longer any sea. All those things we just talked about, gone. In fact, why is there no longer any sea? Verse 6 tells us. He says, it is done. It is done. It is done. We said, we read the same thing back in chapter 16, verse 17, when the seventh plague was poured out, the seventh bowl was poured out. It said, it is done. That is, this is the end. This is where it all terminates. Now, it terminated for Israel and Jerusalem in AD 70. There at the end of the seventh one. Here, this is all of what God has done. It's done. It's complete. It's good. It's, it's taken care of. One thinks of Jesus in on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, where he says, it is finished. There is nothing more to add to the work of redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. He said, it is finished. So we need to know that. And, and what does he see? He sees the holy city, 
new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride. Now, what is the one thing that we know God has predestined us for? They're going to present it here on the screen. It's Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's what God is doing in our lives. He's shaping us and molding us. This is, we talk about progressive sanctification. Uh, he's making us, his people, individually and collectively, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's a beautiful, beautiful image to, to know. Well, how does this happen? How does someone get in the workshop of God, as it were, where he works on you and he shapes you and shapes us as a congregation, us as a church, down through history as well as uh, geographically? How does that happen? Well, Jesus spoke about this to the uh, uh, Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You remember this? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It happens by God coming to us, born from above. Just like the new Jerusalem's coming out of heaven from God, coming down to us. God does that work. Uh, it's a good thing. Uh, what does, in fact, happen when that happens is that God tabernacles among us. We have the presence of God in our midst, and in heaven that's forevermore the same. And here's what he does. Every tear is wiped away. That's what it says. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. God brings comfort and consolation. He knows our sorrows. He knows our devastations. And he wipes away every tear from our eyes. That's this city, this bride that's coming down from heaven. And we've all been looking for that. There's a verse in Hebrews 11, verse 10, that we have on the wall as you go into our fellowship hall. But that verse says about Abraham, for he was looking for this city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In other words, he wanted his life to be built around and upon, looking for that, 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 what the work that God does. That's what Abraham, the father of faith, was looking for. Well, we sure don't see much of that city now, do we? Uh, now, I'm going to talk to you here for just probably 10 minutes or so uh, as your pastor. I speak simply for myself and not for Lydie's church. But I need to speak about issues that are before us and that we're all wondering about. You know, pastors are shepherds. Shepherds are called to feed and to protect the flock. Uh, I feel a urgency to do that. I want to take a few minutes to protect you from what I see as a grave danger. Now, I came across an interesting model uh, in my reading. This is my bathroom reading. <laughs> but <laughs> it's about what happened. It's a, I'm reading a big, thick book called History of the United States, all right? So what? I read the entire decline and fall of the Roman Empire on the bathroom. In the bathroom. Not on the bathroom, but in the bathroom. <laughs> Seven volumes. True confessions. Now, here's, here's the account. This happens in 1933 in Birmingham, Alabama. 
So go ahead, put the first slide up here if you would, please. Uh, the Bethel Baptist Church is predominantly African-American, in a predominantly African-American neighborhood in Birmingham, was riven by terrible controversies over communism. Remember, that was the heyday of communism. Well, for the next 20 years it will be. Uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in, in uh, uh, Russia just happened in 1917. They're consolidating the powers. powers. Uh, this is where uh, Stalin's doing things in Ukraine, 32 and 33, up through 36 is bad time. Uh, was riven by terrible controversies over communism. Several members in the early 1930s were communist activists, but the pastor, Milton Sears, was, I got a misspelling there, was vehemently anti-communist. Huh. So what does that lead to? Well, next slide. When the pastor helped police find an accused black suspect in a criminal investigation in 1933, Sears drew the ire of many of the city's African Americans as well as Communist Party activists. Communists passed out a brochure calling Sears a preacher for the Lord, a spy for the police, and a framer-up of workers. Not a guy that you want to be associated with, in other words. Now here's the last slide of this little part. When a communist-led crowd confronted Sears during a service. Now, how that all happened, I don't know. But they confronted him during a service of worship. The pastor pulled out a shotgun and drove his antagonist from the sanctuary. <laughs> I don't have a gun down here. I don't say it for that. I'm saying that he was prepared to say, we're not going to allow communist ideology to predominate, to control us here at this church. Get out. Okay? So, I thought that was a, I just happened to read that in the last week or two, and I thought that was a good illustration. So, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. That's the big issue right now. Our country's in a turmoil about that. As a statement, we all must agree with it, right? Black Lives Matter. Yes. Uh, the organization, though, I do not endorse. I resist it and its goals. One cannot say today all lives matter without great condemnation and, and consequences falling upon you. Ask Drew Brees. Uh, if you say all lives matter, that's considered wrong. Uh, why do I say this? Well, here's one little part of what uh, the Black Lives Matter Global Initiative goals, where they, they state it very clearly, it says, while this platform is focused on domestic policies, we know that patriarchy, exploitative capitalism, militarism, and white supremacy know no borders. We stand in solidarity with our international family against the ravages of global capitalism and anti-black racism, human-made climate change, war, and exploitation. We also stand with the descendants of African people all over the world in an ongoing call and struggle for reparations for the historic and continuing harms of colonialism and slavery. Uh, I don't think those are good goals. Uh, I could have multiplied all this, but they also stand and are up front in their literature that they stand for the whole LGBTQ agenda. Therefore, uh, they will say, the queers need to be able to be out there, is what they, the way they phrase it. That our trans people need to be able to do this and not have any uh, one say anything that 
bad about that. And what I would urge you about, the reason I use that example with Mr. Sears, is that from what I read, Black Lives Matter at its foundation is Marxist and anarchist. It's Marxist and anarchist. And those are not good things to be. And if I did not tell you that, uh, I would be remiss because it's all over. You have to think about it. And everyone is pushing it. What they want is chaos. And out of the chaos, a new order. And they're prepared to bring forth a new order. What they are doing, they are planning, planting, and growing roots of bitterness in the lives of people. Now here's what Hebrews 12, 15 tells us about that. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Anything that deliberately provokes bitterness, you should know that there's something uh, questionable about that. That's my suggestion to you. I wrote a pastor's column two or three months ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, about how this verse affected me because I had a history in my, our family of, of a root of bitterness and how it defiled all kinds of people. Well, here we have a whole nation beyond that's defiled by this root of bitterness that's being planted. Uh, now, the truth they teach is that the United States is racist and is institutionally racist. Now, I just want to say that's a lie. That's not the truth. No matter what someone says, that is a lie. It's not true. Now, I did not say that the United States does not contain racists. Certainly do. I mentioned uh, Isaac and Janie Inyang. Isaac is from Nigeria. He's a black man. And he's experienced that within the last three months here in, the United, in our area, in southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, he's experienced that. So I'm not saying that we don't have racists, but I'm saying that as a country, we're not a racist country. I think of uh, one particular football player who said that he had all these marches going on in the 1950s and 60s. And what came of that? Nothing. Well, hello. We have a thing called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We have a thing called Affirmative Action. We have all kinds of things that flow out of that. To, to, so to, to put, to say nothing happened is wrong. It simply is a lie on the face of it. What we don't have as a nation, but what Marxists want, we don't have the same outcomes for every person. I see people here who are physically uh, challenged. I see people here who are, we have all kind of different outcomes in our lives. And you can't make it all be the same. We wish it were different, but that's not till we get to heaven. That's the, 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 that's the city of God. We're not the city of God. We don't have equal outcomes. Don't know that we can. So let's talk about George Floyd. My goodness. <laughs> I'm taking a little longer than I thought. But George Floyd, all agree. I've not heard anyone disagree. It was a crime. It was a heinous thing to have happen. A bad way to die. It was a crime. People have been arrested. But now, 
there's a whole contingent in the United States that want to say that particular crime is symptomatic of what's going on and has gone on in the United States forever. And we'll go on unless we do something. I'd like to put up on the screen the 2019 figures for unarmed people killed by police. Do you see that? In 2019, a year ago, there were nine black persons who were unarmed who were killed by police. There were 19 white persons who were unarmed who were killed by police. And I have the documentation there where you can see where that came from and, and all that. Uh, Heather McDonald, in an uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, said this. A police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. I mean, those are, that's just data. And we need to recognize that and see what's there. Now, uh, I'm going to put up a screen, or they're going to put up a slide for me now where it shows the number of persons killed by police, whether armed or unarmed. For the last four years. You see that? Basically what you see is that every year around a thousand people are killed by the police. And usually uh, there's whites, there's blacks, and then there's, they have uh, others that combined a bunch of things there. Latinos, that all happens. Uh, but it's not like one race denominates over another. Those are pretty stable, consistent figures. Lamentable, though they are. Now here's a slide from the FBI. Well, you can't see that. Can you see that very well? But that's, that's where it comes from. Uh, there, that's what it looks like. Uh, Go ahead and put my slide up, Michael, that we can, I made a table out of that that uh, shows what happens here. In the total murders committed in 2016, there were 3,499 white persons murdered. There were 2,870 black persons murdered, and there were lots of other persons murdered as well. Now, the FBI report gives the race of the offender. Uh, White people killing white people was 2,854. 533 of those murders were by black people. For black persons, 2,570 of their murders were by black people murdering black people. 243 were by white people murdering black people. Now, I put all that up there, something to say that, that uh, I don't see any evidence of systematic uh, picking out of one race over another. And of course, you all know that we've taught this for decades here. There's only one race, right? The human race. We've taught that. That's wrong to say now too, but there's only one race, human race. Go back to, we memorized Acts 17 some years ago. God made from one blood all the nations of mankind, and, and anyway, he did that, okay? So we know that. So... Uh, So what should we think about this? If Michael can show it, I'm going to show a, a video of one black woman's assessment of what's happened. 
So Michael, can you? The problem that bothers me, you says black lives matter. I worked here part time. Plus I'm a part owner of this store. You said black lives matter. Why don't you choke me? I'm black. Look what you did to my store. Look. Look what you did to my store. Tell them, sister. That's not because I got their back. These are my look. shoes right here. Good look at the things you've done. Good man. Look. The Black Lives Matter. We've been here all night cleaning up. All night cleaning. And you got black people now. standing right here with us. Black Tell people. me right. Black Lives Matter. You lie. You wanted to loot the store. You needed money. Get a job like I do. Stop stealing. This is the neighborhood. We try to build it up and you tear it down. What's your... Anyway, I thought that was a, a good notion there of terms of how one person was affected by this. Now, the thing that we have forgotten in the midst of all this, uh, again, in that, in City Journal, Heather McDonald said this, uh, the discussion of allegedly oppressive police is being conducted in the complete absence of any recognition of street crime and the breakdown of the black family that drives it. There's our issue. There's street crime where policemen have to be aware of what's going on in the streets. What you going to do? And, uh, you know, the, the white population is following the black population in the falling apart of the family. And we can expect similar kind of consequences as a result of that. Uh, how would you like to be a police officer now? Three weeks ago, you were a hero. You were a first responder. had been for a while. Now... You're an oppressor. People are looking to get you. Don't trust you. It's difficult. That's white and black, Latino, Indian, all, all the different ones. You know, it, it's hard to be a police officer right now in America. And there's talk, well, let's get rid of the police departments. Right? Have you heard that? Let's get rid of the police departments. Well, here's what... what uh, Heather McDonald says about that, which I think is an insightful thing. It says, thanks to the magnificent infrastructure of the rule of law, we now take stability and social trust for granted. We assume that violence, once unleashed in the name of justice, can easily be put back into the bottle. It cannot. You take that down. Uh, I think that's true. So therefore, as your pastor, I'm speaking to you, I say, don't believe the lie being spread by everyone everywhere. I mean, from the, the high elites all the way down, it's coming across that way. Uh, the United States is flawed. I agreed. It's flawed. It's not the city of God, but the United States is not institutionally racist. Uh, across, it's just not. In fact, the United States has great foundations. It has vision. That's a great history. The United States around the world is always looked to as the land of hope. End of screed.
Now we'll go back to preaching. How's that? I got minus 10 minutes to do it. It's going to be hard, hard, hard to get the rest of it done. But I, went, I felt like I needed to speak to that, and so I did. Uh, and you can take it or leave it. Doesn't matter. And that says nothing about what Lighty's Church says. Just that's John Niederhaus, okay? Now, uh, we have hope for all. And Revelation 21 is what gives us hope for all. Uh, it speaks of God's great power. Uh, he says here, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. That woman Jesus met at the well, isn't she a great example? She's the least likely prospect there is in the world. And he deliberately takes time to go that way. He doesn't have to go that way. And, and make sure his disciples are going. And she comes there and he wants to talk to her. He initiates the conversation. He wants to do that. And he deals with sin. You know, she's trying to cover things up. He says, well, go call your husband. I have no husband. Ha! Ha! And he pierces through. You ever have Jesus do that to you? I'm all righteous and holy. All before God and all. You know, there comes a zinger. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) It happens. And he brings that to us, not to condemn us, so he wants us to be aware this is evil and wrong and wicked, but to say, I can get rid of that. I can help with that. That's what he does. He says, you know, if you'd ask, I would have given you water, which if someone drinks from it, they'll never be thirsty again. She thinks he's a big fibber, big liar. Really, sir? Where are you going to get this water? You know, the well's deep here, and you don't have a thing to draw with. <laughs> he says, well, don't worry, because by the water I give is different. It'll spring up as a water of life. That's some other things. And finally, he reveals himself to her. He's the Messiah. He's Jesus, the Christ, come in the flesh to redeem people from their sins. We have hope for everyone. Christ can redeem you no matter where you are or what you've done. Pat and I were talking earlier, my my wife Pat's here, uh, earlier um, this week. I was recounting her some of the things I did as an adolescent, as a young man. Horrible things. And out of the midst of that, God saved me. Can you believe that? I didn't deserve it. I couldn't have believed it. I didn't want it. But he did. And so we have hope for all. Because we see the vision. He says, I have the water of life. I'll give to the one who thirsts without cost. Now, the thing is, you have to have thirst. <laughs> and God arranged circumstances in my life that I had thirst. Now, we won't go into all that. We don't have time. Uh, now, we cannot ignore the reality that's in here. Verse 8. When I first was a pastor, and I do, you know, you read uh, Revelation 21 at funerals, I would stop at verse 7. And uh, the Holy Spirit convicted me. John, you're having people there. At funerals, who uh, that may be the only time they come to church, the only time they hear, you better read verse 8. Really? Yes. That's the one that says that the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. People need to know that. Now, we're not saying burn, burn, burn. We're saying, no, look, look what lies ahead. Come on. There's one who says he'll give you the water, which if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. It'll turn you around. The water will spring of life. 
And then we have an angel with an explanation. You know, those seven angels. He says, come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Same thing we saw in chapter 17, verse 1. Come here, I'll show you the harlot. There, here's going to show him the bride. And chapter 17 then unfolds, and the angel's full of explanations. And he's going to go on and explain things here. And we don't have time for about, we don't have time for anything. We're going to, we're going to do about four things from Psalm 89 that, that uh, the angel would have showed him. Uh, the, the church has the character of God. How do we know that? It says the glory of God's honor. The glory of God shines forth. That means the character of God shows forth. Uh, so let's, in Psalm 89, there, there's four things I think I want to say. Maybe five. Here's one thing that we know. Put the first one up here, Michael. It says, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains. You have founded them. You know, you need to know that. The church needs to know that. All, we, all kind of power institutions around, but God is the one who formed it all. And it all belongs to him. Number two, about boundaries. The north and the south, you have created them. Who establishes the boundaries, the rules, the stuff for earth? God does. Again, this goes back to Psalm 2. We want to shake off his fetters, get rid of his cords that are bind us. He says, uh, go ahead. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Don't worry. We need to know the church knows that God is right all the time. His rules are best. No, no, no matter how well or unwell we understand them, we know that God is right. Number three, I'm going quick. We know, it says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness or mercy and truth go before you. We all have instances of issues we want to bring up with God that we think aren't fair. Don't you? If you don't, wake up. You do. <laughs> There's things that you say, why did this happen? What's going on here? But we know foundationally that God is, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Mercy and truth go before him. It's always there. So read my pastor's column for the June newsletter. It talks about, goes through Psalm 66. And you'll it tells that, but we need to have that as a foundation of our lives. That's, that's the character of God showing through the church. And the fourth one uh, is this, how blessed, how blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. What's that joyful sound? It is done. It is finished. Come unto me, all you who labor. Come unto me. I'll give you a water of life without cost. Come unto me. That's the joyful sound. Jesus reigns. Jesus saves. Uh, in your name, they rejoice all the day. By your righteousness, they're exalted. And by your favor, our horn is exalted. Our, our strength is lifted up by you. All glory be to God. So, how do we conclude this? Quickly. <laughs> One verse. It's John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Just words that Jesus says we need to know. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Amen.